Namaste and welcome everyone. I'm Prachi Mishra. I'm a graduate student of public policy at ISPP University of Chicago, Harris School of Public Policy. I've been working in the Indian policy space for several years now. And the focal areas of my interests are around technology, society, policy, national security, and international development. Today, I'm in the August company of Sri Rajiv Malhotra, who has recently come up with a book on artificial intelligence. It's titled Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. Namaste and welcome, sir. We also have with us Professor Narahari, who is the chair of the Division of Electrical Electronics and Computer Science at the Indian Institute of Science, Bangalore. He has been a faculty at the Department of Computer Science and Automation there and has been there for several decades. And his core research interests are to apply game theory, mechanism design, and machine learning to research problems on the interface of computer science and economics. Namaste and welcome, sir. We're happy to have you here. I would also like to welcome Dr. Geeta Manjunath. She's an AI entrepreneur. Uh, she earned her PhD from ISC Bangalore and founded a healthcare company called Niramai some time ago. Happy to have you, Dr. Geeta. Hi, thank you. We also have with us Mr. Anurag Kesri, who is a robotics engineer, aerospace evangelist, and a data analytics professional with international experience in the US, the UK, and India. At present, he's, he's based in Luxembourg. He's interested in high leverage and emerging technologies, and is particularly interested in their social and geopolitical implications. Hi, welcome Anurag. I would now like to invite Rajiv sir to introduce his book, well, thank you, Prachi, for uh, moderating this and organizing this wonderful panel. And uh, to all of you uh, uh, with amazingly important and diverse backgrounds, uh, I'm very grateful to you for having taken the time to uh, bring this discussion forward. Because the more discussion, debate, uh, new kinds of wide, uh, diverse perspectives, the better for this cause. And 2021 is the year I'm going to spend on uh, the AI and uh, its relevance and implications. I spent uh, five years uh, putting this book together. Uh, before that, uh, when I was 20 years old, which is 50 years ago, uh, I was a graduate student of computer science and uh, my topic was in artificial intelligence, but at that time it was very basic compared to today. So after a, a career of uh, 25 years in the corporate world, technology-wise, in consulting, in being an entrepreneur, starting my own companies, I quit all that uh, in 94 uh, and went into the humanities and social sciences as if uh, in, with my own uh, Infinity Foundation. Uh, and so it seemed to many people that, I, that when I came back with this book on AI, many people have asked, you know, why are you talking about AI and all? I guess people don't know the early part of my career and the fact that I kept in touch with it. So five years ago, several things started happening that convinced me that AI is going to be so important and people are not taking enough note of some of these things. And therefore I started quietly doing a whole lot of my research. Uh, even, and I decided I won't talk about it too much uh, publicly until the book is out. So the book is now out and uh, you can get it at uh, www.aiandpower.com. It's also available on Kindle. It's available on Amazon in, in most countries uh, and various other places. Now, the, the AI is a game changer in the level of uh, the way it can augment 
and substitute mental activity, intellectual activity, uh, both good and bad. Uh, any, any amplification of our physical bodies, muscular bodies, like uh, you know, a car or a bicycle, it uh, augments your muscular ability, uh, can be used for all kinds of things. Uh, similarly, vision uh, through a telescope, through a microscope, uh, or enhancing your hearing capability, your senses, cognition, all of these enhancements through technology are happening, have been happening for a very long time, and they have various kinds of applications. Uh, use of art energy, artificial energy being generated through whether it's nuclear or any, any means has applications that could, you could say are good applications or bad applications. The technology itself is neutral. There's nothing uh, good or bad about the technology. It is what it is. It's the way humans use it that makes the difference. So when I talk about the social impact of AI, uh, there's already a lot of good social impact, and there will be uh, medical breakthroughs, a uh, lot of, uh, you know, uh, more efficiency in society, uh, better food production, better energy production, all kinds of things will happen. But the main thesis of the book is as follows. The impact will be unequal. There will be new haves and have nots. Some people will get more benefit than others. Some people will get new careers. Some will lose, lose their jobs. Uh, some will, some regions may prosper. And other regions of the same country may be uh, depressed because the type of economy they had was not, uh, this was not conducive to AI. It was replaced by AI. And they were not able to jump on the AI bandwagon. Some countries will colonize other countries. So the Industrial Revolution did something similar. The Industrial Revolution was a remarkable breakthrough uh, and brought the world to a different level. But you know, Britain became a colonizer and India became colonized. So you know, the effects are not the same. That's one reason I'm writing this book. I'm not anti-AI, I'm a technocrat myself, uh, but I'm, I'm talking about the responsibility that people have when they get such a powerful weapon, when they have, they have a responsibility towards the underclass, those who are not uh, equally empowered uh, to take advantage of it. So I'm raising that flag. Second, second point is that uh, many other disruptions get so much coverage uh, in the media, uh, in the, uh, you know, like take uh, global warming. Uh, all kind of NGOs, it's a very important topic, and all kind of NGOs are involved, policymakers are involved, think tanks are involved, the youth are involved, so much discussion going on. I don't see that kind of a public discussion on the implications of AI. Uh, I see all these conferences are dominated by the technocrats. Uh, they are they're sponsored by people like Google and Facebook and Microsoft and so on, which is fine. Uh, but the control of the discourse in the hands of the big elite digital giants is a problem for me. I would like more representation from the, the, the bottom of the pyramid, from the villages who are going to be affected, from the, the bottom 500 million Indians who are going to be affected by this technology and Africans. I don't see them in these conferences. I don't see their voices. Uh, I see them, others representing them as proxies. And that's an issue for me. The NGOs haven't uh, gotten educated on this technology. So I, this way, there is, I, I discover, I've discovered a lot of uh, asymmetries, which trouble me. So I wrote this book, and it's organized into five battlegrounds. So with this brief note, I'll uh, turn back to Prachi and uh, let, the, let the discussion begin, Prachi. Professor Narahari, would you like to open the discussion here? Thank you very much. So this is a wonderful book. There are many aspects of the book that I, I have liked. Uh, for example, the categorization into you know five battlefields and the phrase battlefield that Rajiv sir has chosen is very, very interesting. 
the most uh, you know powerful one the last one is india's future so i think uh, it's a fascinating set of topics skimming through these pages i also found that the book has been dedicated in a very interesting way to all the young scientists and uh, technocrats that was very interesting for me so i i'm really curious to know why rajiv sir has actually dedicated his book to the technocrats and young scientists so what is the reason behind dedicating this book to technocrats and young scientists so that would be my first question for rajiv sir i have several other questions i have been a fan of rajiv sir uh, from the beginning that doesn't mean that i agree with everything that he says but you know i have always liked uh, the powerful way in which he is able to you know put forward his arguments so thank you thank you uh, dr nahar ji it's so important to have uh, uh, senior people uh, well informed people experts subject matter experts like you engage this topic and i'm very grateful to you the reason i uh, dedicated this book to the youth is because i feel that uh, the conversation in fact has to, the conversation has to be led by them uh, they, the reason is their their lives are going to be affected i mean i'm 70 plus none of this is going to affect me i'm okay uh, and uh, but i i'm very concerned about the youth uh, i feel that the youth are the problem and the youth are the solution uh, the youth are the problem because there's a very large population and i'm not sure in a world of ai and automation uh, where there will be unemployment uh, new jobs will of course be created i'm not sure that a vast majority of the youth who are not well educated will be taken care of i i worry about it and and but i think that at the same time you have the youth who are technocrats who can solve problems uh, for them it's a great opportunity but then they also need to be made socially aware they need they need to have a conscience they need to have a heart uh, so it's putting the heart into them uh, th- those are the reasons i dedicated to the young technocrats and i intend to spend a large part of my effort in 2021 working with subject matter experts senior people from all over the place but also and particularly with youth groups very well said sir all that i can say is you are 70 years young that is something that i can you know very emphatically say yeah thank you so much dr geeta you can go next yeah dr rajiv sir this is a real privilege to be part of your panel to be reviewing and giving comments on your book uh, itself uh, along with my favorite professor <laughs> narari sir um uh, of course uh, your book actually uh, gives a very different perspective of ai uh, personally being a, you know sort of ai scientist trying to see how ai can make a difference in the lives of millions of uh, indian people using our breast cancer screening solution which is completely powered by ai honestly i was little taken aback and thinking like oh my god there's so much of uh, negative aspect that has been brought out and will that create some commotion right uh, so before i get there you know i really want to congratulate and like i'm very uh, surprised and uh, pleasantly surprised and very beautifully uh, articulated relationship with vedanta you know sir if you uh, can um, uh, sh- say uh, share a little bit more about the stula sharira sukshma sharira aspect that you brought in and uh, you know sort of brought in the concept of metaphysics and connected it with uh, quantum mechanics vedanta and ai so can you elaborate that bit a little bit more so i think the, re- the readers and listeners will be uh, more fascinated to read your book more 
Thank you, Gita. This is very nice of you. A very good question. You see, this is my favorite question. I, I've only uh, touched, I mean, there's a lot of uh, material in this book on this issue of consciousness, Vedanta, uh, you know, metaphysics and so on. Uh, the I'm writing a sequel, which goes in, it's another very large book. This one is already 520 pages, so I couldn't go even deeper. But I'm covering this matter in much more detail. Uh, I'm actually writing two, three more volumes on this AI business, taking some of these ideas further. So a lot of uh, spirituality, Vedanta related to AI will be covered in the subsequent books, uh, not in the distant future. I just want to leave a little gap and then keep up producing these other books. But to give you in a nutshell what I've written so far in this book, you know, the sukshma, the, the sthula sharir is the physical body. Uh, and the uh, the sukshma sharir is the the emotional, psychological, mental body, and I take these terms and I apply them also to the rashtra. Uh, right, India rashtra has a sthula sharir, mm -hmm. and the question is, uh, is the that has to do with infrastructure, economy, national defense? Uh, you know, those kind of things affect the sthula sharir of uh, India. So, how, in what way is AI? helping the stool shari become stronger in what way is it disrupting the stool shari that is the that is one issue in this book the sukshma shari has to do with the minds the emotions the psychology are people uh, are people uh, becoming morons being dumbed down and letting the social media run their lives which is a very serious problem that i raise in this this is battleground number 3 the loss of agency the loss of uh, uh, self will our own free will let going on autopilot what I call Googleization. The, the, mm -hmm. A lot of young people say, why do I need to learn? I can, I'll just ask Siri. I'll just ask Google and they'll tell me what I need to know. Um, uh, Wikipedia will tell me what I need to know. Wikipedia is actually biased. I have, I have a lot of work done that I, uh, that I can uh, discuss later on the biases in Wikipedia because there's a period, it's not a democracy. There's a certain hierarchy of privileges and certain people have more rights. They can overrule other people. And so ultimately, uh, good proof is that my Wikipedia page has a wrong date of birth for me. Now that's pretty solid uh, factual data. Uh, my date of birth on my driver's license, my birth certificate, my passports, all my records is exactly accurate. It's all consistent, but here it is wrong because somebody who created the page put up a date of birth. I don't even want to change it as proof that Wikipedia has factual errors. So that's the world we're living in where there's fake data, uh, fake news, uh, you know, the information is whatever the majority likes. If you get more retweets, then you must be right. Uh, that's, that's the way it works uh, on, on social media. So I'm very concerned about all of that. And, and so this, this uh, loss of uh, selfhood is the issue uh, that you've raised. Uh, am I, according to yoga, I have to discover who I am within. Uh, I go within I have these experiences that, that I've been having since childhood uh, that have become very profound. So when I was in my early 90, in my early 40s, in the, in the 1990s, I quit everything because I had some amazing experiences and I decided to invest the rest of my life exploring this. So I got into, I was always into spirituality and consciousness studies and Vedanta and, uh, you know, in a very big way as part of my life, but I made it into a full-time thing. So that's been a large part of who I am. Now this says neti neti. I, I, I do not go for external ways of uh, getting my pleasures and my delights, yeah. Uh, yeah. the external gratifications. However, here comes AI 
which has great uh, benefits, I agree. But the future is augmented reality where I will be or people will be uh, getting their delights and pleasures from some external stimuli. Uh, I'll go on a virtual vacation. Uh, I'll be eating cho virtual chocolate where I'll get that taste without actually having physical chocolate. Uh, there will be implants, there will be variables. So the future uh, that AI is bringing is a kind of an artificial pleasures, artificial world, artificial ways of generating hormones and so on, endomorphins uh, to give me certain pleasures. This is taking us away from the Satchitanand uh, discovery of who I am. It's not Anand. This is not generating Anand. This is generating kind of gratification of sensory desires and pleasures and so on. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is, this is uh, strengthening the model. There, there has been in consciousness studies, two models. One is that consciousness is primary and the, it manifests in all these physical ways. And these are secondary and they're, they're mithya. And so discovering back who we are, the Anand is the whole journey. And then there is a rival view, which comes from very material biology. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, I have been part of this debate for a very long time, since early 90s in a very, aggressive, in a very active way. And that view is that the, the body is a, is a machine. Biology is a mechanical thing. And uh, to use AI terminology, biology is nothing but an algorithm. It's just algorithms. Body consists of all kinds of algorithms. Every organ is just a whole lot of algorithms. And these algorithms are like machine learning, they're always becoming smarter, learning, adapting, evolving. Uh, so what artificial intelligence is doing is strengthening this second model of who we are. It's strengthening the model because first of all, to develop artificial intelligence, you don't need to know anything about consciousness. You just need, mm -hmm. to, you just need to reverse engineer the neurology, the neuroscience, turn it into algorithms. The better you can turn neuroscientific models of the body into algorithms, the better you can manipulate those algorithms. You can cure PTSD, which is great. You can cure bipolar disorder by interjecting positive thoughts when the person is having negative thoughts. You can monitor the flood of uh, the, the neuron flood uh, when somebody is having a certain experience, record it, and then you can replay that uh, from memory and recreate that experience. So if, if a certain neuron burst uh, uh, is, corresponds to this person's joyful moment, uh, then, then when he is sad or want to do a murder or commit suicide, uh, then you can just push a button and play that joyful flood of neurons and he will feel very happy. So you can do all kinds of things with it, but you can have virtual tourism, AI-based uh, travel. Uh, you can also have fantasies. You can do all sorts of things. So the real battle for self, which is battleground number four, battleground number four is what you've asked about, which is the battle for self. So the, on the one side of this battleground, and battleground means that there's multiple ways of looking. And so I'm basically featuring what are the multiple, multiple contestants in each battleground. So in battleground number four, which is called the battle for self, you have the, you have the adhyatmic view, the Vedant view, the view of consciousness, the view of people who are meditators, that's one view. And then you have the AI. AI is the ultimate that human beings have created using the biological model of gratification of a biological machine. I use all these terms that this is a bio, we are modeled as a bio machine. And so the silicon machine can interact with the bio machine because they're both algorithms. They got all algorithms. So the algorithms you can learn in the silicon, you can map the algorithms of the biology and reproduce mental, mental behavior and understand mental behavior and manipulate people's mental behavior because you can now 
put them into a, into models. And you can also do the other way around. You can artificially manufacture, uh, you know, experiences. So this uh, battle for self is a battle for the future of uh, what happens to AI and what happens to Vedant. Now I'll stop here because uh, where I'm going next in my next book is I'm actually proposing things that can be done very constructively in AI using Vedant model, using okay, Vedic I, model. I would really love to read that book because as a student of spirituality, uh, very, very Mickey Mouse steps I'm taking there versus uh, obviously doing done something in AI. And I, I found this extremely fascinating view uh, in this space. And uh, you know, I would love to debate more, but I let uh, other people talk. And then I, I really want to come back to this. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Gita. Uh, Anurag, over to you. We would like to hear your thoughts and you can begin the conversation with her. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, you know, it's been uh, my, my pleasure, certainly, also collaborating with uh, Rajiv, uh, you know, going, uh, providing some inputs and comments on, on this book as it was shaping up. And indeed, I think it contributes to, you know, a very an increasingly popular, uh, but very relevant and much needed uh, genre of public discourse on, on AI and its multifaceted you know, impacts on individuals, societies, nations, and indeed in between relationships between nations. So uh, to, to sort of switch tracks a little bit from, you know, the previous question, uh, and then, you know, focus a little bit more on what's happening around us in, in reality, you know, the last one year has been quite a different experience for all of us with the pandemic. And indeed, you know, uh, Rajiv, she does go into this as well in the book. Um, you know, what, one point I wanted to make was that, um, you know, India sort of uh, pleasantly surprised us uh, by most accounts, you know, it's pivoted reasonably well, considering its sheer scale, you know, the challenges of scale, complexity and diversity has pivoted to, you know, uh, survive this crisis. Uh, you know, it's, it's doing better than several other countries uh, in India. And, uh, you know, with the recent, uh, you know, and then this has certainly been quite a catastrophic in, in so many other ways, but the recent, you know, sunburst hacks, for instance, on the US government in the cyber arena, uh, you know, I, I wonder if India can sort of pivot with the same agility, respond with the same sort of, uh, you know, the uh, same sort of mobilization uh, as it did to the pandemic. And I, in fact, I, I would say, and, and I hope Rajiv here agrees with me, that's sort of, that sort of an attack on India, and which is indeed quite a, you know, imminent and real possibility in a cyber attack infiltrating a lot of our systems. Uh, that could be in some cases worse than the COVID pandemic, right? And we have been able to survive the pandemic, uh, you know, because of, uh, we have, you know, a lot of the digitization of finance and medical records and so on. Uh, and if those fundamental uh, things are sort of attacked, then we uh, are not even able to manage, you know, getting through a medical pandemic, uh, let alone, you know, other, other aspects. So how, and Rajiv, this is a question to you, how do you think uh, India would respond to something like this? And what needs to change? You know, what are the lessons we can learn from this sort of biological virus, the pandemic, and similarly apply it to, you know, a potential, uh, you know, a cyber attack uh, on the country that might be uh, of, of a bigger scale and indeed more consequential. So, um, uh, you, uh, you know, I've shared the whole book with you, uh, uh, Anurag, so you, you know the details I, and I shared many, many months ago. Uh, uh, so you know that uh, a very large part of my criticism in this book uh, is uh, the uh, entry of, uh, uh, Facebook and Google into Geo, uh, 
by making big investments and uh, kind of uh, getting in the door. Uh, and I see this as a huge breach of uh, data uh, rights of Indians that the, the, the Googles of the world and the Facebooks of the world and Twitters of the world are having a field day. Uh, capturing big data of in, on Indians. So when Indian number one fights against Indian number two, and he, they do all kind of fighting and all that very dirty stuff and all, you know, uh, uh, this is going on all over the world. Guess who's capturing all this data? It's these people, what I call digital giants. They are the ones capturing all this data, building psychological models, saying, okay, this is what turns on Anurag, this is what turns him off, this is what gets him all ticked off at somebody, these are his friends, these are his enemies, ideologically he's on this side, if we drop this fake news, he'll go for it, if we drop that fake news, he won't go for it, if we give him all these 5-10 offers, this is what he's likely to click, these are his fantasies, these are his weaknesses, this kind of a modeling is happening to every single human being on the planet that they, are, they have on the, on the, in the system. And so hundreds of millions of Indians are being uh, uh, psychologically modeled more intimately than your personal psychologist would be able to model you because the data they have is more than the one hour session you have with your psychologist. When you have a one hour session with your psychologist, he or she knows only so much about you and you don't reveal everything. Whereas on your social media, you just give out everything. And so and uh, the model they have of you, they have more data than your relatives and friends have. They know you better than you know yourself because you don't want to admit certain things and you have a certain fantasy idea of yourself. And these algorithms, these machine learning algorithms, you know, these deep learning algorithms are figuring you out in much better detail. The reason they are successful is why, is, is, is why, why they're able to sell merchandise using these AI algorithms. And that is the reason the advertising is shifted there. And that is the reason they got their got trillion dollar market caps. All of a sudden, 10, 15 years ago, you know, these companies didn't exist or they were very tiny. Uh, so all the big, uh, big marketing and media and advertising is diverted only because these companies can guarantee that they understand the, the audience, they will target not only the which people should be given messages for the for on behalf of the sponsor, but what the message should say for each type of person. And with deep fakes, they can even fabricate, they can take a standard commercial and for one person, it'll be a beautiful blonde. It'll another person will be a beautiful brunette. For somebody, it may be an older person, man. And somebody, it may be a younger woman. Some, you know. So how to manage your psychology is, is what these systems have hacked. That is battleground number three, is the hacking of the agency, the hacking of the inner psychology. So this hacking in India is being done by foreign companies. So they know Indians better. They know how to create trouble. They know how to create a Dalit uprising, what to say, how to uh, create a Muslim uprising, how to create a Hindu uprising against certain people. People pushing buttons through these algorithms are, are sitting abroad with no accountability uh, before the Indian law or before Indian public are actually running the show. So I'm comparing it with the East India Company uh, making one Raja fight another Okay, and deciding, adjudicating, okay, you are right, you are wrong, I'll help you, I'll block him. That is what these digital media are doing. So the power to power of Indian minds, power over Indian minds is now in the hands of people elsewhere pulling these strings. So China did the right thing. They blocked all these 15 years ago and they created Chinese equivalents. So they are accountable in China. Now, Jack Ma is in trouble with the government but because he stepped out of line. If it had been some Eric Schmidt, previous CEO of 
Google or uh, Zuckerberg or somebody from one of those companies, uh, the Chinese wouldn't have access to that guy. But because Jack Ma is right there, they're setting a lesson that, you know, you guys who operate in Chinese jurisdiction, we can come after you. So India doesn't have, there is no accountability in India. In India, uh, I, some of my posts uh, on, uh, on uh, Facebook and uh, YouTube and uh, Twitter for totally useless reasons, uh, get blocked, get shadow banned. We put out a, pa a panel discussion on the AI applications in the military. And I had uh, Air Vice Marshal Bahadur and uh, uh, General Pannu, uh, and the three of us were discussing. That we got a message from YouTube that it has been blocked. For what? So then our guy called, Brian, in fact, who's here, he called and he finally, what they told him is that uh, according to the AI algorithm, uh, this is promoting abortion. But it is not promoting abortion. So the algorithms got their own weirdness. They got their own errors. They got their own biases. And so we are being controlled. There's biases in these algorithms. The way they are trained is not objective. It's, not, it's certainly not friendly to the Indian uh, culture. Uh, the premises of what is good and what is bad is not friendly to the Indian society. It is somebody else's criteria of what is good and what is bad. Uh, and I have so much to write on this. And I, and I have written on, in this book and I have so much more to write on this. So the entire uh, India has been, India has sold itself, its data rights uh, and data access to foreign uh, digital giants. Uh, and these digital giants are now the big advisors telling Niti Aayog, which is the planning commission, uh, what should be India's AI strategy. They are the ones in the advisory boards. It is McKinsey's, it is a World Economic Forum, it is a PricewaterhouseCoopers. It is these kind of guys. And, uh, and, the, and the Googles and Microsofts and Amazons and uh, Twitters and you know, Facebooks of the world, they are sitting in the government advising, they are sitting in the ministry, they are sitting in the geo as an investor who got the money and the geo jumping up and down, their shares are very good, they're very happy. Mukesh Ambani is even richer and he's a bigger hero. I don't like any of that. So I have a very contrarian view uh, towards the Indian industry uh, falling for the uh, foreign uh, digital giants, uh, the Indian government falling for that, uh, for the Indian gurus for being totally ignorant about this, not even knowing a darn thing. The Indian NGOs not, not playing their role, which, which they ought to be playing a role. The Indian media doesn't know a whole lot. So who knows all this? That is why I decided that phase one of this book launch should be with technocrats, should be with people who are subject matter experts. They at least understand my argument. They may not be social scientists, but they can understand the argument I'm giving because they know the power of AI and they, they understand all the things I'm talking about. I had the, I talked to a very, a couple of very important, well-known economists in India on this, uh, you know, on the issues when uh, Geo accepts so much money from uh, Facebook and uh, Google. I got pushback. They said, no, 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 you don't understand all this AI business, all this security threat. Oh, no, no, how can it be? They couldn't believe when I told them that, these, that this, this gives the power, more power than old fashioned media, this gives power to control people's minds. They couldn't believe it. So I said, but you know, Putin, uh, uh, Putin intervened in US general elections. I mean, so, and, and you know, uh, there's, so there's all kinds of examples I could give. This is why Edward Snowden is sitting, running away in Russia because he exposed this. And that was many, many years ago, things have gotten even worse now. So this business of surveillance, what these guys can do with face recognition, all these cameras everywhere, you know, there are a few hundred million cameras, a few hundred million 
cameras in India being monitored and the mon and with facial recognition, with shape recognition, figuring out who are your friends, who are you with, where you go. Uh, and, you know, India can be blackmailed. The Indian leaders are all over this social media. They, they, they can figure out how to blackmail this guy. Uh, so I think that India's ability uh, to manage pandemic is one thing. But in the case of data, in the case of the, how much the big data has been compromised, and I give several examples in this book, uh, which I think will generate a lot of uh, you know, debate, controversy, and so on, but I'm happy, I'm willing to face all that and discuss all that. But the amount of data of India that has been compromised already, and the very superficial data protection laws that are still being debated, not even enforced yet, uh, there's a huge dichotomy there. And by the time these laws are debate are in the books, and then by the time they are implemented, you know, the data is siphoned off so much. Uh, even if you stop the data moving out, the point is that the models have been built. The models on, uh, you know, which breaking India force can be made to fight which other force and who will be aligned with whom and what are the triggers? What are the triggers and who are the, the stakeholders? These models exist. These, the, so turning India into kind of a virtual battlefield, you know, with somebody else on their dashboard figuring out what to do. This is a very dangerous state for India's survival as a nation. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. So indeed, so the pandemic is just one crisis, but in fact, the bigger crisis is that of data and data sovereignty and so on. Yes. Okay, thank you so much, Anita. Uh, Rajiv, sir, extending to what just you uh, you just spoke about um, about China and U.S. and this this race for the top leadership uh, leaderships uh, slot, um, I as as a uh, as as a twenty seven year old as a policy analyst, I see that the rest of the world is becoming more and more vulnerable to AI led neo imperialism and neo capitalism. What do what what do we do? What 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 is your message for the youth here? What are we supposed to do? Well, you've seen my you've seen my book, and there is a whole. Uh, uh, I, I have a section called "Return of the East India Company." I have a section on that, uh, and I compare. Uh, I have a whole uh, section comparing uh, China with the ancient Rome, uh, where Rome built these roads, and they had hard power with engineering and all that, and which was the basis for a far-flung empire. And uh, China is doing this with uh, the new kind of roads, sea, sea and uh, land routes and whatnot, and uh, through Pakistan and through Africa and whatnot. And they are sort of the new Rome in that sense, uh, with using engineering and technology to kind of uh, have export, import control, movement of goods, movement of people, movement of money, all of that. So China is becoming like the new Rome. I talk about it. And then I also compare China with Britain. Uh, Britain's industrial revolution and colonization, I compare that. So I think that uh, both China and the United States will compete for colonies the way France and England were competing for colonies. And the role of AI in this revolution, uh, in, in this new industrial revolution will be similar to the role of the previous industrial revolution, which launched the age of colonialism. You know, I, it's very interesting. People say that, look, why are you worrying about uh, uh, economic problems? A good example is the industrial revolution created more jobs than it destroyed and the economy of the world became so many times bigger. I'm saying yes, but it was not equal. It became bigger for, for Britain and Indians are the ones who lost jobs. 
Britain, British people are the ones who got those jobs. India de-industrialized because those industries were not electrified factories. They were not electrified factories. So they had electrified factories with the industrial revolution. So they took all the jobs and they colonized India. And they were, the colonial, whole colonial establishment of the world uh, was based on the industrial revolution in Europe. So it was an unequal impact that you have to look at. So while you can say that AI has a lot of good things, the point is, uh, are the good things available equally? And the answer is no. So this, uh, the, 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 this, the, and imperialism is definitely on its way. And, and this is going to be, it's not 20 years away. I mean, people, first of all, I'm very shocked that I get all these invites from India. Uh, like for my previous books, there's a momentum. So people inviting me. And now for the last few months, when they invite me, I tell them I'll talk about AI rather than talking about some Hindu phobia or some breaking India force going on or some temple issue or some, you know, what to do with this scandal and should Chidambaram go to jail or is uh, AAP, the up party bad? I mean, I told them, look, you are obsolete. All that is just tamasha. It is trivial compared to the ship is sinking. The ship is, the ship has got huge leaks. The ship, ship will sink unless you, unless the captains of the ship take note of it very quickly and take some actions. I don't see that happening. I see India being obsessed with uh, politics, pettiness, uh, you know, who will win what elections, infighting. I don't see the brilliant Indian minds focusing on these issues. I see them focusing on all kinds of other issues. So that is the reason I'm writing this book to wake up, shake up the smart people. India has so many smart people and they need to wake up on this issue. So this, uh, the, the imperialism is going on. US, US had the whole thing figured out 20, they're always 20 years ahead, uh, into the future. But China stole a lot of secrets, big borrow steel, whatever it took, they took a lot of AI type stuff, technology. So China is catching up and China made a decision, they announced it publicly that by 2025, they will be the number one in the world in AI. And most Americans I've talked to in national security and in various other areas, fear that that is actually happening, that China is becoming number one. So this is the basis of this whole trade war with, between US and China. And it's sort of like France and England were fighting each other. They were fighting wars with each other. Okay, but then they were all, both of them fighting over the colonies, who gets which colony. There was a French army in India and a British army in India and a Dutch army in India, and they're all fighting each other for colonial control. So you will see uh, USA and China doing this in many parts of the world. And this is, this is a new age of imperialism, a new age of colonization. AI is the en engine driving it like the industrial revolution was. This has not become a topic of conversation. It needs to become a topic of conversation. Our gurus are sleeping. Our social scientists are sleeping. I, I think the people who really know all this in India are the military people because I, I talk to them. They are concerned and they, they really get it. That was uh, very interesting. Our gurus are sleeping. Our social scientists are sleeping. That is very, very interesting from you. You also said the youth of the country are both the problem. They're also the solution. Uh, I think Anurag uh, you know, pointed out uh, a very dangerous threat, namely the cybersecurity threat and uh, the data threat and so on. Um, so, it, so what is happening is that uh, AI seems to have a lot of destructive capability, which could be exploited by evil forces, and that could lead uh, to social welfare destruction. This is one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, uh, you know, for example, 
Dr. Geeta Manjunath has a wonderful company and, uh, you know, it is able to help uh, so many women to, you know, come up with early diagnosis of breast cancer. It is such uh, a noble thing that is being done. And uh, this particular company is completely driven by AI. So the other way of looking at AI is, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's a magical way of, uh, you know, achieving social welfare maximization. So social welfare maximization versus social welfare destruction, both seem to be on the anvil. So now if we want to steer the world in general, and India in particular, towards social welfare maximization rather than social welfare destruction. What is it that uh, we need to do? And what is the role of the social scientists? What is the role of the gurus? What is the role of professors like me? <laughs> and uh, what is the role of the youth in making this happen? So if you can share your thoughts, that would be wonderful. Wonderful. This is, this is a great question. Thank you for the question. You know, the I've read every single report on AI's impact in India, uh, all kinds of reports, uh, several thousand pages worth of reports, uh, whether it's Nitiayog or FIKI or CII or NASCOM or uh, uh, PricewaterhouseCooper, Ernst & Young, uh, World Economic Forum, United Nations, you name it, I've read those reports. Interestingly, they're all top down. Uh, particularly the, the corporate uh, advisors like uh, these consulting companies, PricewaterhouseCooper, Ernst & Young, McKinsey, and all these kind of guys, and some, unfortunately, Niti Ayuk just quotes them. Uh, uh, they, are, they went and uh, uh, they, they interviewed 200 uh, HR departments of big companies. So it's a big company, Sensex, Sensex economy, top down. None of them, none of them went to the panchayats to see the bottom-up view of the villages, that's 500 million people. None of them went and said, let's go and do a district by district, state by state, bottom up idea of AI's impact. Industry by industry, state by state. So the, the social scientists need to activate this. They need to take this book and amplify it and take, go to state states, different states and ask them, okay, let's, let's do something in your state. Let's do something in your state. They need to go even down to the village level. So the understanding of AI's impact has to be bottom up. I'm worried about the 500 million poorest people in terms of economic social strata. I'm worried about those guys. Uh, I'm not worried that, uh, you know, driverless car will come and Mahindra, Mahindra will make some more money and their, their stock price will go up or, or whatever. I, I mean, I, that, that'll happen. But, you know, about six, seven, eight percent of all Indian workers are working for the big companies the corporate organized sector. Amazing. Less than 10%, somewhere closer to 5% of all Indian workers are working for the organized companies, the ones who get FDI, the ones who are the big, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones in the AI conferences. It is their speakers. It is they who, write, who, who hire these consulting companies to tell them what to do. So they are defining how AI is great. But the, the impact on migrant workers, who's, th who's thought of that? The impact on farmers, who's thinking of that? Nobody. The impact on small and medium industries, no, not too much being going on, just some lip service. So the AI knowledge and research on impact is focused on top down, big business people, their point of view. 
and it is focused on upskilling a labor force to be outsourced to the Americans so that the Americans can use this outsourced AI coolies to create more intellectual property for themselves, which is not Indian intellectual property. It is intellectual property belonging to the American company. So when we are very proud that so many lakhs of our young people are working in software, the point is they did not develop any, any uh, Indian intellectual property that India got the benefit from. They developed property, intellectual property for their foreign clients. Most of the, there are very, a lot of very smart Indians in AI, and, uh, but most of them have gone overseas. And the ones who are in India are working for Microsoft in India or Google in India. Uh, they are not working for Indian companies. And, and the ones who are working for Indian companies, most of them tend to be in the venture capitalist tends to be an American company or a Chinese, it used to be Chinese and American uh, or some European companies. And their, go, their goal in life is that they'll be bought off by an American company. So this is, this is what's happening. We are becoming laborers. We are becoming laborers. So we are like coolies. We have coolies for hire by other people. Now the old coolies are no longer needed. So we're going to upskill our people, make them smarter coolies, AI, AI coolies, data scientists, so that American will hire them. I criticize in this book a quote by Uday Kotak, saying it is his dream. And this is industry leader's dream. It is his dream that just like people in the urban areas are working for Microsoft and all these people, he dreams that the villagers will also one day be working for Microsoft. So I said, my God, what a, what a joke. Why not a dream that we will create our own uh, operating system? We will create our own social media. We will create our own, uh, uh, like China has done. Why, not, why the dream that we will become the servant of this uh, Mahabap sitting, this Gorasab sitting somewhere and we'll become his servant? Why this slavish mentality? This is a colonized mentality of our leaders. Uday Kotak, I put his quote there. So this is the, this is the problem uh, that I am facing. And the uh, problem, this is a very serious problem of attitude, uh, attitude towards, you know, lack of self-esteem in ourselves. Indians are very brilliant people, but somehow the, neither the government nor the academics nor the industry have been able to organize them into a very giant, a very big uh, AI, um, uh, you know, mechanisms. So I propose one of the concrete things I propose is that just like we have ISRO for space and we have Baba Atomic Research for atomic energy, we should have a huge enterprise like that for AI. And by AI, I mean not only just pure AI in a narrow sense, I mean quantum computing, I mean semiconductors, aerospace, robotics, uh, we, uh, you know, uh, face recognition, vision, uh, all these augmented realities, all the conglomerate, the ecosystem of uh, technologies, uh, you know, that are where AI plays a very central role as sort of moving them forward and combining them and, and, and so on. This kind of a thing deserves the same priority, the same funding, the same national level that uh, space has gotten and uh, atomic energy has gotten. Uh, in fact, uh, I was in a discussion with uh, uh, the former chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, Anil Kakorkar, on my book, and he endorsed the book. In that, he says that uh, Bhava, when, when uh, Homi Bhaba, soon after independence, convinced Nehru that even though we are hungry, we don't have enough food, we are a poor country, but we must invest in atomic energy uh, to be self-sufficient and to be one of the major players in the world because this will be very important for the next generation. He said that. And Satish Dhawan, whom I knew as a teenager, my father and he were college, uh, they went to college together in Lahore. So he was a family friend. Satish Dhawan was such a pioneering figure in India's space program. 
And look, suppose we had not done the space program, it would be a very serious problem for us today. So you see, this is what AI is now, where atomic energy was in the 50s and space starting in the 60s and 70s, how it went up. This is the future, the future is now AI. And it's not going to be over several decades. I predict by the middle of this decade, the haves and have nots of AI will be more or less permanent. And the ramifications in terms of economy and who's getting colonized and who's, who's in trouble uh, will, will become very evident. And, and I'm worried for India. I'm really worried for India. So the, the, the gurus, Naraharji, gurus don't want to come on my discussion to talk about this subject. They don't want to talk because they're saying things like, why should I talk? What is relevant? Uh, why? Uh, I don't know. What is this? They're, they're giving very superficial, simple views, very simple minded, but they're generally not well informed. And so, and I, and, and, but I've got one young uh, Ramakrishna Mission Swami. He, he very openly said, I know nothing, but I'll learn. You tell me, I'll learn, I'll read. So I give him a lot of material and he's quickly reading. So that's a good guru. That's a good guru. But the senior gurus who are big shots are too proud to want to learn because they want to show like uh, they know everything and what they don't know doesn't matter. That's kind of arrogance. Okay. Now, as far as social scientists is concerned, Naharji, I went to Delhi University uh, sociology department and various social sciences department. I went to JNU and I looked for young social scientists who would join all this. And so many people offered because they thought it'll give them some instant limelight. They want to uh, become important. And, but when I gave them reading material, I gave them chapters of my book. I gave them things to read. There was, I didn't see them being very sharp or very bright. They were very dull people. They didn't quite understand it. I tried to tell them that the, the methodologies of research in social sciences are becoming obsolete. The way anthropologists capture data is old-fashioned old data. With AI, you can capture that data, and, the, and they are capturing the data much better now. AI people have better social models about all kinds of society, villages, district, this region versus that region, different strata. They have much better models right now using all this machine learning than the old, old social science methodology. I try to convince them that. But they, unless some uh, Gora Saab comes and gives them a new model, uh, then unless some government official gives them some new ministry of education, one day maybe they'll wake up and do all this. Unless, unless they are told the social sciences revolutionized with AI, unless somebody with authority comes and tells them that, they don't care. So I, I feel uh, quite uh, disappointed at the lack of innovativeness uh, on the part of Indians all over across. And I've spent the last five years traveling here and there, talking to a lot of people confidentially. Uh, very well said, sir. I mean, uh, you mentioned the name of Professor Satish Thavan. I would like to mention to you that when I joined the Institute as a student in 1979, he was the director of the Indian Institute of Science. In fact, he was the director, he became the director of IISC at the age of 42, and then remained the director of IISC for uh, 18 years until the age of 60. Recently, we had a wonderful celebration of his centenary also. And uh, uh, also you mentioned about, uh, you know, the government supporting mega initiatives. I'm very happy to tell you that uh, the current government recently had an excellent initiative called the Vaibhav Initiative, where uh, they had uh, 15 to 16 verticals in science and technology. And AI was one of the verticals there. Uh, the uh, the idea of the Vaibhav initiative is to network uh, 
the Indian higher education institutions with uh, higher education institutes all over the world and specially invite the Indians who are working in these higher education institutes to have a, a synergy between uh, these two groups of scientists. And uh, it turned out that uh, from the Indian side, I was leading the IISC initiative and IISC was the lead, lead, lead institution for the artificial intelligence area. And let me tell you that uh, the Indian government is going to invest a huge amount of money in the AI initiative and also in the quantum technology initiative also, they're taking steps to have massive uh, investments. So uh, with the Atma Nirbhar Bharat, also, you know, gaining a lot of visibility and gaining a lot of conviction among the Indians. I think things are going in the right direction. That's what I may like to say. I'm very, I'm very glad to hear that. I'm very glad to hear that. I'm very, uh, and I hope that uh, uh, you see. But one thing, if I may add, if I, if I may interject, is it's, yes. it's one thing to network bright people. Uh, but, you know, ISRO is not just a networking of space scientists that are scattered all over the world. There's actual projects they have to deliver, missions. So I'm reminded of uh, in 1960s, uh, in, uh, in 1960, uh, a little bit after 60, the Soviets uh, took a leapfrog, they leapfrogged ahead in space and the Americans were taken by surprise. And then in 1961, John F. Kennedy said it is his dream that uh, America should land on the moon during this decade. In 1961, he said that. There was no moon program, no more, no American moon program. Soviets also didn't have moon program. This was like leapfrogging ahead of just going into orbit, you know. And surely enough, by 69, when Kennedy, of course, was dead, but 69, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. So uh, from 61 to 69, they were able to create a program from nothing and just achieve this huge goal. Now they put a large amount of investment and it had, it required a focus. It required headquarters. It required. So what India needs is one is like networking. We talk, we go to conferences together. We co-author, we are on webinars together, that kind of collaboration happening. And we are in, we invite each other as visiting professors to conferences and so on. That's fine. But there needs to be mission. So let me suggest some missions. Uh, IBM has uh, uh, Watson, which is their AI engine, the giant AI engine. So Watson goes into banking and automate the AI. They go to medical, automate the AI with AI. So this is their AI solution that they go to one industry after another all over the world and uh, or use it. And then there is GPT-3, uh, which is for natural language processing. Now, uh, India should have had the GPT-3. India should have developed the Watson. Now, these are not projects that require, you know, 50 people, 100 people only. They're, these are very giant projects. These, so India needs to, uh, and maybe with you as the leader, uh, you could move this forward. There need to be a project that says we will do the GPT-4, 5, 6. We'll go get ahead of them. And uh, we will create our own something like Watson. We will create, so India will create its own engines, its own intellectual property, proprietary applications of, 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 on a very big scale. We need to do something of that kind. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look at why India spent so much millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars for every Rafael jet, it's AI. I talked to the air, airline smarts. It is the AI which allows the pilot to have to do the job of 20 pilots because it's tracking so many, so many signatures of so many planes. It's able to uh, look at the, the trajectories, the velocities with which they're going, figure out the right strategy, the optimize which way to go, who to attack, how to attack, how to dodge. So all of that, a human being would not be able to keep up with so much. 
So the AI, it's the AI in, the, in these foreign jets that uh, makes us buy them. So, you know, we can keep saying that, yeah, it is uh, possible for us to do it and we are a lot of smart people, but we need to turn the brains into, into missions, into huge, giant bets. China made billion-dollar bets, lots of them, started huge ventures and bet right, bet correctly ahead of the curve. Now, we are behind, at least 10 years behind in all this from China. We need to catch up and we need to leapfrog ahead. That is what I'm trying to achieve or trying to achieve in my own way by stimulating this conversation. And in my future volumes, I'm going to actually put concrete projects on the table saying we got to do this and we got to do this. Oh, extremely well said. I think high risk, high reward projects and mission oriented projects is the way to go about it. I hope India will take the right, you know, right, uh, you know, moves in the right direction. So I think I wanted to ask you one question, but I think you have answered most of the most, you have answered most of the things that I wanted to ask. Uh, just one final question. What do you think are the top three things that India must do going forward if they want to, you know, face the AI revolution in the best possible way? So I already said one, which is they should start uh, some things, the scale of ISRO, are not just a collaboration of uh, intellectuals, but actually a mission with missions to deliver with deliverables during this decade, like the John F. Kennedy, let's put man on the moon during the decade that kind of a vision type of thing. They, and I have ideas there. Uh, that, that is one thing that uh, India should do. India should uh, cre uh, create its own uh, so social media platforms uh, and, and get them uh, hundreds of millions of uh, uh, you know, subscribers, members, followers, whatever, uh, the way China has done and the way United States has and should eliminate its dependency on American social media and uh, not, not encourage and not allow even perhaps these American social media to come and take big stakes in Indian, Indian tech giants, Indian giants like Geo. Selling out Geo was the wrong thing to do. Reliance is one of the very few companies that could have said, we'll, we'll put in billion dollars to make an operating system. We'll put in billion dollars and, and invest in our own search engine and we'll put in our, our own social media and all that, the way China did. A small chota mota guy can't do it. Uh, there's very few companies. It's either Tata's who can do it or it's Reliance who can do it. There's very few companies. And they should have put their money into that rather than, okay, we're very, we're, we're, we're very fortunate because they put $20 billion or whatever amount of money, it shows that we must be very important, very special. I mean, that's like East India Company comes and does a takeover of uh, Madras presidency and, and Madras people suppose they're feeling very proud that, you know, wow, the British have come and uh, invested in us. <laughs> so, you know, we are, we are happy colonized. We are just a bunch of happy colonized people because uh, we got this inferiority complex that, you know, Google came, everybody congratulating Anand Mahindra saying, bravo, Mukesh. I've quoted this in my book. Uh, you know, this, this uh, first of all, the billionaires, how they became billionaires should be questioned because some of that, while it's all legal, it is a lot of wage arbitrage. It's keeping the Indian wages down so that you can have a big markup with, uh, compared to American wages and make that arbitrage middleman middle profit and not reinvesting it in futurist technologies because that's long-term and that's risky and these guys didn't want to do that. And then the, these billionaires uh, you know, sell off their large part of their equity like a large part of Infosys and uh, many of these companies are owned on the New York Stock Exchange. They're owned in foreign stock exchanges. They're not even belonging to the Indians now. We just work there and the headquarters are there. We feel very proud. We feel proud that this guy is a billionaire. 
Why are we so proud of our billionaires? I mean, why are they icons? Why are we worshiping these guys? Okay, they made a lot of money and they're living a good life. That's good for them. But why do we have to worship them? They are not the right more role models. And you need to create the role models are entrepreneurs who are making technology made in India for India, Indian intellectual property, not selling labor to somebody else. And so the, the, few, the few companies, so you want to see what we should, you want my views and what we should do. So that one of the things is that these very rich companies should invest in developing Indian platforms and taking over the American platforms, uh, just like the Chinese did. Uh, and we need much stronger data rights, the data protection, the, the current ones I've seen, I've seen some of this between uh, private, non-private, data and whatnot. I mean, this is better than nothing. It is better than it, is better than it was before. Uh, and I congratulate some of the people who put all these together. But I do not think they have understood the full dimension and the full scope of this problem that I'm talking about in my book. Thank you, sir. I think uh, missions, platforms, and data protection. That's excellent. You, you got it. So, yes. Narharaji, you and I have to work together. After this, we have to, we got to create our own discussion. And, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, after all this launch uh, act, uh, thing is done, uh, we got to turn, produce some uh, ideas, uh, concrete ideas and uh, uh, conferences, proposals. I would love to work with you because your, your thoughts are very much in sync with mine. And I'm delighted and honored to have a, a person of your stature, uh, you know, collaborating with us. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Geeta. Would you like to uh, take up the next few questions? Uh, sure. Um, I want to sort of, you know, elaborate on the point that uh, Professor Narari mentioned before, right? You know, and sir, um, uh, sir you mentioned about Stula Sharida fixing with AI, right? And I want to go back to that discussion. And then, as you also mentioned in the introduction, right, you know, a use of any technology uh, depends upon how and where it's used, right? You know, any augmentation of physical body can be negative or positive, right? And um, given that there has been a lot of, ne uh, you know, negative aspects, uh, you know, which are stressed in this uh, for the good reason that people have to wake up, you know, I think that was a very insightful thought, right? Um, but still, I think we still should not forget uh, how AI can be a boon uh, to yes. make high quality, uh, affordable, comfortable, yes. predictable life to everyone, including yeah. the rural areas. Particularly, you know, you also mentioned about Indian um, entrepreneurs and so on. And I'm very proud to say that Niramai is one such Indian uh, uh, startup where we are trying to use AI to actually make healthcare possible to every nook and corner of India. Right. And, uh, and and we do have Indian IP, sir. We have 10 granted US patents, Indian patents, Canada patents, Singapore, and, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, several others. So, so that is, that is, and, and I really loved the statement you said, like, we have to actually encourage entrepreneurs to actually use AI for serving this uh, community and, 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 and such kind of, uh, you know, jobs. And, and so, I feel if more and more such people uh, come up and then use AI to serve uh, the uh, currently underprivileged uh, group of people, um, then we can definitely generate new kind of jobs, right? Uh, for example, if I speak about breast cancer screening being done completely automatically in the rural areas, these are these these pseudo doctors are used and the screening is done by simple health workers, you know, because the software takes all the burden out and, and the red yellow green report is completely automatically generated by the machine. 
And so what this enables us is now when we have a doctor to um, patient ratio being very, very low because the number of doctors serving, especially they don't want to go to go to the villages as well. So, so in that kind of a thing, if you can enable um, uh, these smart uh, work, uh, you know, um, health workers uh, with these pseudo um, robotic, uh, you know, machines, uh, they become, you know, pseudo experts as well, you know, and become almost like pseudo doctors and then trying to provide critical healthcare at the right time. And so that we can, of course, if there is a problem, we can bring the people back to the hospital uh, for further care and so on. But the first level critical care can be provided completely with uh, AI. So I really request you to sort of um, in your next book, as you mentioned, you know, talk about the positive side of it and uh, and also see how India can focus completely on um, using AI for the benefit of bridging the digital divide, bridging the service divide, bridging the comfort divide that exists between the rural and the urban uh, ecosystem today, right? And that is possible, um, you know, by by enabling these pseudo doctors, pseudo specialists, uh, you know, in, in in all over all over India. And of course, this will also uh, kind of democratize highly skilled jobs like doctors and so on, where you know uh, it's it's now available at scale to the you know to, to the to everybody essentially. And one last bit was about um, the literacy and there will be like haves and have nots. Yes, there will be haves and have nots, but just like, you know, people who were uh, driving uh, carts are now driving cars, right? You know, so, so there is a little bit of a skill change and we see a lot more literacy, may not be a reading literacy, but definitely mobile literacy, mobile usage literacy, computer literacy. We see that to some extent, quite some extent um, in villages as well. And so, so converting them to a different type of literate uh, who are users of AI, uh, you know, would be would be wonderful to see, you know, um, you know, the whole India benefiting, you know, that sort of uh, was my uh, broad uh, thought as to look at the positive aspects of AI and how we can actually make everyone happy and healthy. Sir. So this is very good. But uh, just to sort of remind you, uh, when you see, even if you see the table of contents and go in and read more of the book, the chapter one is on the positive contributions of AI in my book, chapter one. Chapter okay. one is I'm talking about contributions in healthcare, in education, in culture, in tourism, in banking, in all kind of defense and, you know, research. And I'm, I, have a, I have it broken down by maybe five or 10 different kind of uh, domains of different verticals, you might say, uh, and what are the benefits that AI is doing? And I have summarized all this because I want to acknowledge that that is true. But I, but yes. then the, the, since the, all the conferences are full of that and all the discussion is full of that and all the, uh, the whole buzz, the whole discourse is full of that, uh, I don't want to, there's no reason for me to write a book on uh, rehashing what uh, everybody's saying. Uh, uh, you know, I took retirement from a very nice, uh, thriving industrial job in tech, tech and all that for over 26, 27 years, full time, out of it completely, not as a weekend hobby or anything, but completely involved in this. And I would, it would be a waste of life for me to be repeating what already people know. In other words, in other words, that which is already known, which is half the glass, the other half the glass is what they is empty, what they don't know. I would rather focus on balancing it out by bringing to their attention the things that they don't, they're not paying attention to. And while, while being fully cognizant that this has to be balanced. You see, if India did not do enough AI, then India would become a poor country, back lag behind, we'd be colonized. This is true. If India did not have enough AI, India would become colonized. So to resist colonization, you have to do a lot of AI. If India does too much AI and the wrong kind of AI, then India will have unemployment. So this is the problem. The dilemma is 
if you do too much, it's a problem. If you do too little, it's a problem. If you do too little, you'll be, you'll be colonized by those who are better economically, industrially, militarily, they'll take you over. If you do too much AI haphazardly in a disorganized way without looking after the bottom of the pyramid of society, then you will create massive unemployment, social unrest. You will create hundreds of millions of people in disarray and distress, and this will create more social problems. And I'm concerned about that. So I do want a lot of AI. I do want people in India to be at the cutting edge of AI. That's why I would like this GPT X next generation to be Indian. This uh, uh, Watson uh, generation four, we ought to be shooting for. We ought to be doing big projects like that. Certainly we should do that, but we should control them in India. And we should not become dependent on, you know, we are exporting labor and importing the results of the foreign of the intellectual property produced by the same labor. You go to any big American enterprise, any, any industry, you'll find a very large number of Indian techies. So they are the brains who are producing a lot of the work. And then India is paying royalties and buying all this stuff back and with all the fuss and all the conditions that the, uh, the intellectual property license has in it. You see, so we are not able to harness our brains. This is the problem. This is the problem. It is not about I don't, that I don't want this AI. It's just that I want a made in India AI for yeah. national purposes. Uh, so I am for AI. And, 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 and my, my, the reason I'm concerned about India is that we have not utilized AI enough with, for our own, uh, our own investments, our own technology. Now, I'm not clear. I'm not, I don't know how your company is funded. I hope it is funded the Indian, Indian venture money such yes, that, sir. such that, and, and I hope your dream is not that somebody will come along and make you a billionaire, buy you out and you'll just be sold to Google or something. My dream is to make everyone healthy, sir. Very good. And keep the ownership and give the, the stock options to the uh, entrepreneurs, the hardworking people in India. Uh, that, is, that is what I would like to see. And, and you are already doing that. So I'm very grateful to you. And I'm very thankful. And I'm, I'm so honored that I met you because I, I want to encourage such people. So please continue what you're doing. Thank you so much for waking up everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Geeta. Um, Anurag, any follow-up questions? Uh, often I see in my own experience too, a lot of venture money chasing these kinds of, uh, uh, you know, make in India. If you look at, you know, some of the apps that are being made, I think, uh, you know, as Rajivji points out, there needs to be, you know, more uh, education too on the part of those funding such ideas. Uh, they need to see beyond just, you know, an app that's made in India, even if it's made in India by Indians, even if it's in Indian data centers, you have to look at ultimately it's a deep technology stack. Right, so the make in India people sort of fall for only the, I think the uh, superficially, and you have to look at what are the APIs behind it, what are the software libraries behind it, you know, how much of that IP is truly Indian, you know, if it's if it's an app that's you know made by Indians in India with Indian data centers, but uh, you know the the core software libraries are coming out of UC Berkeley, you know, funded by National Science Foundation grants, or if you know it's coming out of uh, Google open sourcing some other library or other. You know, it kind of defeats the purpose. So, I think what we need is really that sort of a, you know, deep, uh, deep technology cultivation that focuses on on the grassroots level, layer of the technology stack, and then you know after that anybody and uh, you know everybody is building an app these days. So I think that's the easy part. You know, it's it's quite straightforward. You have high school kids these days doing doing a lot of these. So I think that's one important point, and and I'm glad to see, uh, you know, some of the IP. Uh, you know, that Dr. Gita has sort of 
uh, alluded to is, is in India. We should definitely see more of those. Uh, the other point was about, you know, and, and Rajiv, you mentioned this in both in your book and, and other talks as well about the sort of military industrial complexes, military, in fact, military industrial and academic complexes. And you, you referred to the example of, uh, uh, you know, the, the moon landings in the States. In fact, that's a topic quite close to my heart too. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quite an inspirational uh, example. In fact, uh, if you look at, you know, the early days, just to delve a little bit deeper into that example, like the Apollo guidance computer, uh, when people had no idea how to figure out to get to the moon, you know, what kind of guidance system and so on. So the core technology was actually uh, at MIT. In fact, NASA's first contract was not to an industry. You know, they were not giving the contract to IBM. In fact, IBM and others were quite annoyed at the time. The contract actually went to MIT, uh, which kind of you know, took the industry by surprise. But it was MIT, you know, which came up with the technology. It was Raytheon, a private industry, you know, respectable defense contractor today that actually manufactured the computer. A lot of advances were made in computing, uh, you know, in that process. And, and, and uh, you know, some of the gyroscopes were manufactured, again, by local industry, small companies like the Waltham Watch Factory. Uh, you know, they built the gyroscope. So when you look at that example, you know, it was for the first time uh, and perhaps the best example of ac academia and you know, an academic institution, industry, uh, and the program was obviously overseen and managed by NASA. Uh, you know, that the role that they played, I think, is, uh, you know, quite inspirational and very, very effective. In fact, you can see those partnerships to this day, right? I mean, the technology change, the key point I think I want to make, and and I'm interested to see what, uh, you know, Rajiv, as well as Professor Narhari and, and everyone else thinks, is that, you know, AI is certainly one technology. What these examples, you know, that both Rajiv talked about is, and, you know, what I mentioned here, the real success in cultivating is that innovation ecosystem, right? Regardless of the technology, are we able to really, uh, you know, bet ahead of the curve, as, as you put it? You know, are we able to sort of, um, you know, not just be, a, you know, chasing technologies, because we can always say we're five years behind, 10 years behind, you know, somebody in a certain technology. But if you look at countries like Germany and Japan, you know, which actually lost a large part of their industrial base after the Second World War, you know, they, they lead today, not just in technology, but also those ecosystems that they put together, right? So I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, uh, are, are we, you know, when should we focus on AI, you know, uh, on its own, whereas when do we focus on the, the whole technology? Because it really is on multiple fronts that we need to sort of fight this battle. In many of my uh, other uh, panel discussions, I've talked about the military industrial academic complex. Eisenhower coined the term, popularized the term military industrial complex, and I've added academic to it. Uh, you know, when I came as a graduate student at the age of 20 uh, to the United States uh, to do my PhD in physics, and then I switched to computer science, uh, my, uh, it, was such, it was so inspiring that my professor would, uh, uh, was, uh, he had grants from the Department of Defense, uh, from the Pentagon, uh, all kind of military stuff in computer science back in those days. So I had to get security clearance to visit the Pentagon with him, uh, even as a young student, you know. Uh, playing a role. It's very inspiring. The, the Department of Defense gives so many contracts in technology to academic people, big ones. Uh, and then these academic people, uh, the professors, they get uh, students, graduate students to work on these grants. 
uh, and that that channels them. It, they're working on something very substantial. Even as a student, they know they're part of some very big thing. Uh, so the, the the imagine the inspiration it gives you. Imagine uh, uh, in India, it's uh, university education is not about research. It's uh, teaching from books and you know, and a lot of politics, a lot of student riot, and who got elected, and who's fighting whom, and who's been booed, and they they you know when you go to a prestigious Indian university, even uh, a IIT Madras or some various IITs and certainly Delhi University or any of these universities, you don't see a, a vibrancy of technological activity going on like you, you would in, a, in an MIT or a Carnegie Mellon. And the role of the government is huge in this. You know, the United States government pioneered in internet. Uh, they, it was called DARPA-NET, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, NET. And then they dropped the deep to allow other people to get in ARPANET. I, I was a, one of the early ARPANET users. So when I tell people I use the internet in such and such year, they say, oh, hey, there was no internet at that time. It was not called internet, but that was called ARPANET. It later became renamed internet, the same protocol. Um, you know, the Department of Defense funded, uh, when I was in ITT, uh, as a vice president, they funded uh, fiber optics research. And uh, this gentleman who was a Chinese American uh, in his office, his office was next to mine. He got the Nobel prize. If you look up the Nobel prize for uh, fiber optics, it was shared by two, three people. One of them was this gentleman. He was with us in ITT. So this is a defense contract to generate, to make fiber optics. Uh, you look at transistors, Bell Labs, somebody, you know, they got Nobel prizes, space program. Uh, you look at, uh, uh, you know, Charles Towns got the Nobel Prize for uh, inventing laser in the, also in Bell Labs uh, defense program. Uh, so you, this list is a long list. Even more recently, driverless cars, it, these driverless vehicles, the Department of Defense, they started a competition. They said anybody, can, uh, they had a competition in the, in the desert on the, in the you know, the, the, the Arizona, New Mexico, California, that whole area is very desert. So they had this uh, almost 200 mile or something uh, journey and you had to start here and reach there. And that was a race. They would give you a lot of money for, uh, uh, for, for, to the winner. So the first year they did it, everybody bombed. You know, nobody could go more than a few feet not a single, it had to be driverless. Your car had to drive without any driver. Nobody could go more than a few hundred feet, but people got galvanized. There was a team from Carnegie Mellon, one from MIT, one from Stanford, like that. These professors with their students are developing all these algorithms with cameras and sensors and figuring out, you know, and then they had another, another race and they had another race. So the Department of Defense funded all this and pretty soon the whole driverless industry was born. So I could give you a lot of examples that in my 50 years in this country, I've seen uh, brilliant long-term thinking, big billion dollar bets, big game changers uh, that are conceived of. Uh, often it is uh, defense oriented, you know, military oriented, CIA oriented, very futuristic things. Then they'll give grants to industry, uh, you know, the McDonnell Douglas, the Northrop, the IBMs, Google, all these people have defense, uh, you know, big, huge defense things, Microsoft. Uh, uh, and they give grants to the academic world. So the triangle of uh, military, industry, academic is very strong in the United States. Uh, there is a, also there is a military industry alliance. There's a military academic alliance. And then there is academic military, uh, academic industry alliance. Why don't they 
why wouldn't a very cash rich uh, Reliance or a TCS or a Infosys, why, why wouldn't they go and create a, some academic program where uh, some 50, 100 people will work in some institution, a lot of grants will be given, they'll network them such that in five years they'll come up with a, a GPT-5. Why couldn't they do that? I mean, this, is, this requires vision and this requires rolling the dice on big bets and not being greedy that, okay, I have to worry about short-term income and profit. I'm going to buy another private jet and I, I'll, I'll build a 20-story high building in Mumbai, all this kind of stuff. And we are glorifying these people like they are the next, they are the devatas. Uh, Indian society should reject this uh, ultra-rich uh, in the last generation on tech, uh, based on tech, and wonder why, why didn't these guys uh, invest in, the, in AI? Why, didn't the, why, are we, why are we AI poor? And yet we said we are software capital of the world. And with the, all these guys making all this money, it doesn't make sense to me. So I, I, uh, I, I fully agree with uh, what Anurag said. Uh, investing in ecosystems. So there is, a, there is something societal. It is not just policy. Societal jugad, which jugad means I will quickly solve a problem for me today. And I'm not worrying about a systemic solution. I'm not worrying about uh, going into some, uh, solving something which will be for society at large, which will be a long-term strategic solution. I'm only want to get out of my predicament right now. So I will fix up, do a fix and get out of my predic predicament. That Jugaad mentality we have developed. That Jugaad mentality is very difficult to get rid of. How to change, go from Jugaad to something which is very long-term. Now the people who made Mohenjo Daro and Harappa and Dhola Veera and all that were not doing Jugaad. I mean, they were systems thinkers. These things went on for hundreds of years. And these things had, a, had an impact over thousands of square miles. You know, so the, that kind of scale of thinking we have had. We have had. It is not new to India. But somehow in recent times, we've lost it. And we've become these Jugaadus looking for quick fix. Quick, if I can outdo you. Clever, cunning, I do this, I clever do, you know, and then I, get, I mean, that's all that matters, short term. And India needs, India needs, uh, we do need that also. We do need short term, uh, you know, solution oriented, uh, uh, firefighting type people we do. But we also need the big guys to be in long term ecosystems, infrastructures, big bets, billion dollar bets. We need that. And I don't see that happening. I don't, I don't know of a single multi-billion dollar AI-oriented, tech-oriented bet that any Indian industry has given, that has done. I don't see that. I don't see which is the, which is the, the one big multi-billion dollar bet that Ratan Tata can say or Mukesh Ambani can say or any of those guys can say that by the end of this decade, this will be our big breakthrough contribution. I don't see that. And yet we go around saying that we've got so many billionaires and they're rich guys and you know, they're like movie stars and celebrities and all that. Something wrong with our society that our values aren't right. So definitely a good point because, you know, there's either, you know, the top-down way of these, a lot of these cash-rich companies being able to make these bets or, you know, the government like DARPA did come forward with the grand challenges, you know, throw a challenge and really stimulate industry and academia to, you know, come up yes. with uh, entries to do that. And we see, unfortunately, you know, uh, no, nothing of, of that scale or similar happening yet. And, and hopefully that will change. Uh, Professor, any closing thoughts? I think I have a takeaway from the wonderful discussion we had today. Um, Rajiv sir has talked about uh, the AI battlefields. And uh, I think today during these conversations, he has also given us a mantra uh, to 
how we can actually conduct ourselves or win win the war in these battlefields i think his mantra is uh, indian missions indian platforms and data diligence so if we are able to do that then i think uh, we are definitely going to win <clears throat> but then uh, on the battlefields we will need several many many surgical strikes and these surgical strikes will be in the form of companies like niramai yes. uh, of geeta manjunath so if we have 1000 geeta manjunaths and we have 1000 uh, surgical strikes like that so with this mantra of uh, you know indian missions and indian platforms and data diligence i think uh, india is well poised uh, to you know match china uh, the united states and go much beyond i think that's my uh, take away uh, from right. the wonderful conversation today thank you so much sir thank you yeah. rajiv sir any thoughts from your end well i just want to thank everybody uh, uh, you know uh, uh, professor narhari uh, uh, also prachi put it all together and uh, dr geeta you are brilliant and uh, we are very proud of you and and uh, anurag uh, great work you are doing and good insights so i i feel we had a nice cross section of uh, uh, views uh, people from different careers and different backgrounds and uh, uh, you know different parts of the world i i really want i want that this year uh, i want your help to uh, take this message further uh, so beyond this uh, wonderful uh, panel uh, we we'll, we should do many more i would like to do a full conference a virtual conference on this very subject and would like to invite you and help to help me out in this uh, so that the message goes to the state depart state uh, governors and chief ministers and level it goes to the district level it goes to panchayat level it goes into different languages it should go to ngos we should also go after some gurus and convince them to do a round table with us and talk about all these things uh, you know so and and all the social media activists who got all these youtube channel somebody got this twitter millions of followers they are lost they are lost about the big implications of their own actions i keep telling them that you are very successful in somebody else's platform you can push one button and you are out or you can make a threat and you fall in line so this has not sunk in and we are still glorifying our success based on somebody else's stage on their stage we are doing our dance and our doing our acrobatics and doing our performance but he controls the stage he controls the lighting he can pull the strings he can kick us out i mean you know we don't have our own platforms that is the point that uh, dr narari ji said so thank you very much everybody really an honor to have been part of this discussion i must say for me <laughs>